0: Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listeners like you. If you're not listening in for the first time and you aren't low-income or struggling financially, we'd love to get your direct support so we can keep diving into these critical discussions, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you believe in and value this work, you can chip in starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you are a current or past supporter, I see you and... We are so grateful. Thank you so much.
1: Something that I've seen a lot of comments on people posting Black Lives Matter stuff is like,
0: "Oh, don't make it political." And I'm like, everything that they were doing
1: before was also political. It's just that it doesn't it doesn't make you uncomfortable. I think the, the thing that people want, want want to comment is like, "Don't make me uncomfortable." That's what they mean when they say, "Don't make this political."
0: That was Michaela Loach, a climate justice activist, co-host of the Yikes podcast, and medical student based in Edinburgh. Her work focuses on making activism spaces more inclusive and accessible. And as a Black woman, she's extra passionate about the importance of anti-racism work in the climate and sustainability movements. This past summer, in light of Black Lives Matter regaining global awareness, it really has felt to me like the environmental movement has or is going through an awakening to a point where it's major influencers, activists, nonprofits and brands that champion sustainability that previously did not really touch the subject of social and racial justice are now seeing how interconnected it is with this work of conservation. But there's always, of course, more unlearning and new learning we can do on this front, which is why I'm honored to have Michaela here on the show to help us understand the dangers of what can happen when white supremacy seeps into environmental activism, turning it into eco-fascism, how narratives framing global population growth as an environmental harm can perpetuate racism and economic injustice while overlooking the actual roots of our ecological breakdown, and so much more. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe and together let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word.
1: I think I got into climate activism and like caring about the environment in a not that direct way. Um so I grew up in a very white area so I'm mixed race like I'm but I'm like I present as a black person in the UK and I was always kind of like the only black person in a lot of my spaces and so kind of like being aware of racial injustice and um, from quite a lot young age was something that I was just very aware of always that I would be treated differently for some different reasons or that race injustice existed in systems and in our institutions and I remember being aware of that from a really really young age and then wanting to kind of wanting to do something about it but not knowing how to like being a young kid you don't really know much about activism especially where I grew up I didn't grow up in a space where there were tons of activists or protests I grew up in the countryside in the middle of nowhere and mm. I didn't really get exposed to a lot of that stuff So I always read about like Dr. King and Angela Davis and Malcolm X and all these different people and saw them as activists. And I was like, okay, well, it almost seemed like activism was this thing that happened in the past and that we were kind of, we're grateful that they did that then, but we're like in a different place now. And it's almost like we don't need the same kind of struggles. And it was only when I started to want to create some change in my life somehow, um, I actually thought, okay, well, this, the way I can do this is through lifestyle change and through, I think that's how a lot of people end up getting into, into a lot of this stuff, is, like, I went vegan, I stopped buying fast fashion, I, like, started going zero waste and all these different things because I was, because I think we're told that that's the way that we can create change. Is like, okay, if we change our behaviors and our habits and if we use our privilege to change, like, how we're voting through what we buy, then that's how we can almost, like, create change in all these different spaces. So that's how we can stop the exploitation of people in the global south, like, is through just changing our habits of buying. But then, kind of like parallel to this, I was getting involved with refugee rights activism. So, people who don't know, um, on the border of France and the UK is a place called Calais, and there's basically a community of, um, I say community, but like there's a group of refugees who and displaced people who are um, living there in quite destitute conditions. And both the UK and the French government aren't really helping them out. And I got involved in activism with a grassroots organization called Help Refugees probably about five or six years ago, and have gone back and worked there and supported their work like ever since. But this was all happening that kind of parallel to me doing these lifestyle things. And then I don't remember the day that it hit, but it hit me one day that like these two areas that I really cared about was so linked when it, if, when you think of them through the lens of climate justice. So I'd never seen myself as someone who was a big climate advocate from very young. Like I wasn't really that connected to like environmental issues um, because I didn't see the relevance that they had to like oppressive struggles that I had to experience. Um, and it was only when I realized that the climate crisis is so linked to um racial injustice and migrant justice and all these other things that it really brought that all together for me and then i started to have this greater connection to like the earth and the planet and all these other things that was quite long sorry yeah. <laughs> that was a bit no, of, a of things.
0: so what you're speaking to is how When we talk about climate change, it's obviously largely driven by the developed Western countries and their most extractive multinational corporations. And because of climate change, it's forcing more and more people elsewhere to have to migrate because they might no longer be able to live, subsist, and make a living where they traditionally called home. But then I guess with racism and a fear of jobs being taken away by immigrants forced to migrate that breeds this sort of anti-immigrant mentality. So to me, that's just injustice layered on top of injustice layered on top of injustice.
1: Mm, Yeah, so I'm writing my my thesis for my dissertation project this year for global health policy. So I study medicine, but I'm doing global health policy kind of intercalated year in my degree this year. And my thesis is on um, climate refugees and specifically there was a case in December of last year, where basically someone from an island called, um, an island nation called Kiribati, he had migrated to um, New Zealand because he was worried for his family's safety um, living in Kiribati, like with rising sea levels. And basically he then tried to claim refugee status after he'd kind of stayed on beyond his visa. And in in my thesis, I'm just looking into like how the different agencies kind of phrase this and like frame this issue. And it's been really interesting to see how a lot of these countries that have been responsible for the climate crisis and the way in which um western like economies and western consumption um fuels the like the disparities that we see in both the effects of the climate crisis but also the contribution to the climate crisis and how they're not willing to accept the responsibility of the the people that are displaced because of those actions. Mm-hmm. so it's, it's it's' kind of like strange thing that um. Yeah, that even though these like these more industrialized countries have contributed so much more to the climate crisis, they won't take responsibility for the people who are being affected by it, and that is racism in itself, and that's like it's white supremacy of being like we'll do all these different things because we like we want to live this lifestyle that comes from creating this this huge impact on the environment, but we don't actually care about the impact that has on other people, and then when it has that impact, we won't we won't actually care for them and we won't look after those people.
0: Right. And this really re- reminds me of that we have to question this term, national security, because mm. a lot of immigration issues are framed as national security issues, but security for who? And mm. especially with a lot of the police brutality going on, people are saying, you know, the police's job is to protect and serve, but protect and serve who? So, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So right now, the two major things going on right now is we have the coronavirus pandemic happening in the Mm. backdrop, while the Black Lives Matter movement has regained global awareness and heightened support after the recent too many incidences of violence against our fellow Black citizens, including George Floyd, Brianna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, Shard Brooks, and the list goes on and on and on. So you've been really keen on bringing this conversation of anti-racism into the climate movement, which to some people mm. may may not be new, but to others who may never really have thought deeply about climate change and what that has to do with this Black Lives Matter movement and with racism, what exactly is the relationship there and why is it important for us to draw this connection? That's
1: something that I um, have had to engage with a lot more recently in the way that I've had to engage with people who've never thought about this before. Because I think that there are many ways in which um, social media can be an echo chamber. So I think that for a long time, like I have been only really interacting with people who already knew about racial justice and and climate justice being so linked. So recently, I've had to kind of go back to basics, I think, in explaining a lot of things to people, but basically the the climate crisis as a whole it has been created because of resource exploitation and huge extractive industries which a lot of them go out to countries in the global south such as like shell going out to the delta in nigeria and exploiting kind of the resources there in order to allow people in like the global north in quotation marks to live some sort of life in some way and so in, in even in that even on that basis like the climate crisis itself was created on a foundation of kind of neo-imperialism and like colonialism and in its own different way. And so, and then also in the impact, in how the impacts of the climate crisis are felt, communities of colour are disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis. In the UK, for example, where I'm based, in London, um, black individuals are more likely to be affected by air pollution. So the whole George Floyd Thing that's come about with him not being able to breathe and him saying I can't breathe there are people that literally can't breathe like a lot of black folks literally can't breathe because of the climate crisis so if we're kind of tackling the climate crisis and doing our climate activism and we're not paying attention to um how white supremacy and racism plays into all of that then we aren't actually going to be able to tackle the issue properly what we'll be doing is creating a better world or quote unquote saving the planet for one group of people so we'll be we'll be maintaining the current system and the current system is like is racist and upholds white supremacy and is white supremacist and we'll be upholding that current system if, if, we're not disrupt, if we're not disrupting like the racist roots of this, we're going to be upholding the current system, and we're not going to be creating meaningful change for all people. So what we need to do within our climate activism, within our environmental movements, is acknowledging how racism plays into that as well, because if racism is prevalent in all spaces, then we need to tackle it in all spaces, and we need to be anti-racist in all spaces. So especially when it comes to climate activism, as the impacts of the climate crisis are felt most by communities of colour, like if we're not also being in solidarity and active solidarity with the struggles that communities of color face then we we're just not going to be creating an actual actual world we we'll would just be doing we we'll would just be continuing our current system but just without the threat of like the planet burning being behind us
0: right i think it's easy to assume that people who care about the environment likely are people who are compassionate and you know really care mm. for other people care for other living creatures care for this beautiful living world. So it might be surprising to a lot of people going through the Instagram accounts of a lot of environmental nonprofits or environmental Mm -hmm. focused brands like Patagonia, the North Face and Mm -hmm. so on. And when they posted about Black Lives Matter, if you just read through the comments, there are a lot of people that are like, just focus on Mm -hmm. the environment, like don't get political. I'm just like, how is Mm -hmm. this a political Mm -hmm. issue? (laughs) And (laughs) if you care about the environment, how is this separate? <laughs> Mm-mm. And also, I think one thing that I'd always say when people say, like, don't make
1: it political, I'm like, everything is political. Like, everything that we do is a political act. That's like, true. Everything that um, controls. So, for example, I always use the example of, like, a speed limit. So where I live, you can only drive 20 miles per hour around the village. That is a political choice. <laughs> like, everything that we, like, the the fact that, I don't know, like, that a cereal that I eat doesn't have, um, has a certain amount of sugar in it or something. That was a political choice that was made by people. So there can be political choices that that help people and there can be political choices that harm people um, and making out that things aren't political or like divorcing ourselves from that. Or even yeah, even the, the ability to, to divorce yourself from like being politicized is just very, is very privileged because politics affects all of us. It's just in, it will harm some of us more than it harms others. And so being able to be like, it's not political. I don't want to get involved. It's just being like this, like politics actually doesn't affect me currently in the same way. Therefore, like I'm just going to step out of it. And yeah, I think that's something that I've seen a lot of comments on people posting Black Lives Mass stuff is like, oh, don't make it political. And I'm like, everything that they were doing before was also political. Right. It's just that it doesn't, it doesn't make you uncomfortable. I think the the thing that people want, want want to comment is like, don't make me uncomfortable. That's what they mean when they say don't make this political.
0: Because mm. yeah, even these environmental organizations, caring for the environment, you know, really fighting for environmental policies, that in of itself was already political. So You're Mm. right that it's only when these policies don't affect us personally, that's when we feel like this is not relevant to me. You know, you don't need to tell me this and so forth. So that's really important for us to keep in mind. And with all this said, what do you feel comfortable sharing with us regarding what it's meant for you or been like for you to be a Black woman within climate circles?
1: So it's been been tricky.
0: I'm not going to lie. Like, I think people don't really
1: realize how different, the experience is as a black woman or as a black person or i'm sure as being a different marginalized person of some sort within climate spaces because um it means that i've ended up spending i've talked about this quite a lot at the moment but like spending more time kind of combating internal racism <laughs> that mm-hmm. i experience, either that i experience personally or that i see happening than i do doing active climate work which is very frustrating because there's a quote from um there's a quote by Tony Morrison, um, which talks about how the kind of the I can't remember the exact direct quote, but it talks about how racism does its best job at distracting us from doing what we actually need to do. It just gets us to constantly just repeat and repeat our own experiences and our reason for being and justify that. And I've definitely found that within climate spaces that often I'll be the only one or like me and my other friends who are also people of colour are the only ones who will be the ones to call out when there's eco-fascist dog whistling. So when someone talks about overpopulation as the cause of the climate crisis which is just not the cause of the climate crisis i could go on about that for ages but all that all when people are saying things that are kind of marginalizing i feel like in so many ways i've been expected to speak up in those situations or that i am the only one who will speak up and that's quite like a big burden to carry um all the time in those spaces and i think that like one thing i'm hoping that will come from all of this is that People, I, like, I don't like the argument that people never knew before because they did know they just were ignoring it. Mm. But people, it's, it's been made that they can't ignore it now. Like, they just can't ignore it. And I'm hoping that now in a lot of those same spaces where before people wouldn't speak up and it would kind of be left left up to me or to um, other people of color to speak up, that now other people and, like, white allies will stand up in those spaces and be like, hey, I see that this is bad and I'm going to be the one to do the work rather than just being left to us all the time.
0: Right. So what's really important and what a lot of people are learning from the recent events is that it's not enough to be not racist. We have to be actively Mm -hmm. anti-racist. And so let's talk about eco-fascism. This is something that has been discussed more and more, especially with certain narratives around the pandemic and the environment. I'm wondering if you can introduce this concept to our listener while, of course, weaving in the subject of racism, which is very much at the core of that.
1: Mm. So, if just off the top of my head, if I'm just going to kind of define what ecofascism is, I would say that ecofascism is basically a way of getting to climate targets or climate goals that oppresses people. So that's quite a big statement to make, or like a bit a bit of a broad thing. But like, kind of just to dig into that a bit more. um So, for example, an example of that would be an over- the overpopulation argument. Very a lot of people, all of us, would have heard at some point that overpopulation is the cause of the climate crisis, and that communities and countries that have high population rates need to decrease their population rates in order to save the planet or to um, reduce emissions or so and so forth. The reason why that argument itself is so problematic is kind of the roots in which it comes from, but also in the way in which it doesn't hold up. So a lot of eco-fascist arguments will make claims that kind of make out that the pro- the cause of the climate crisis is with vulnerable and marginalized people rather than those who have power. So, for example, with the overpopulation argument, it will often cite countries in the global south and say that um, because they have high population rates, they're the cause of the climate crisis. And what, they, what we need to have is their populations need to slow down or decrease. And because like too many humans are the problem is kind of the way they'll say it. And the kind of like the etymology of all of this has been... Um, White American scholars and um, white American men who went over to countries like India or Bangladesh, and in their quotations, like in them coming back, they described them as just being too many people. All the all the people are dehumanized in in the kind of the way they narrate it. They kind of talk talk about all these people as just. Being worthless, and that it's their and it's their fault that we're in this issue. But when you actually break down this issue and look at it, so often countries um, in Sub-Saharan Africa or in or in Asian countries are those are the countries that are at the centre of this kind of overpopulation argument. They say that these countries need to decrease their emissions. But actually, when you look at it as like a per capita emissions, people in these less industrialised nations they contribute so much less to the climate crisis, and it's actually um, The footprint of people in the global north so in countries like the UK where I live um, or countries in the US that contribute um, a significantly more amount of emissions to um, greenhouse gas emissions and the climate crisis as a whole so but then within these arguments you never hear people saying that um, we need to control the population in the UK or the US it's only ever kind of cited that these countries much further further away so that in itself is a racist notion because it's the the idea that the problem isn't here, the problem is there. it's like this whole pointing the finger away from us and being like they're the issue, not us, even though the actual cause of the climate crisis is capitalism and overconsumption. like those are a much greater cause of and wealth inequality. those are the kind of issues that are actually causing like such great emissions. And if you look at how the emissions of the UK versus per capita of um, a sub-Saharan African country where a lot of these overpopulation um, initiatives are being put in place you can just see that it doesn't actually hold up and so you have to look at like if if statistically and if the data like doesn't hold up these arguments then why are they being made and then you can realize that oh it's because oppression is kind of an underlying thing within all of these
2: arguments. Daddy leaves it on all day through I've been thinking about the wars And to be honest, I can't take it anymore I hear you every day The awful words you say But hate can't be the face of the American.
0: So, of course, our overall environmental impact is a factor of a lot of things, which includes how we live, how consumptive we are, as well as how many people there are that are being that consumptive. I'm wondering if you think even bringing up the idea of overpopulation is eco-fascist in of itself, or is there a way to discuss this without feeding into that unintentionally if we... Discuss and added the nuance of how people with greater affluence, with more consumptive lifestyles, have much greater impacts than typically people with less material wealth, which really applies to most people in our so called mm-hmm. developing countries that tend to have higher birth rates. So there are multiple parts of this equation that need to be considered, and we can't just say overpopulation is a problem, period without adding in the layers of nuance and how this should be a greater concern to actually the developed countries that are more affluent.
1: I think, yeah, I think it's just that um, the climate crisis as a whole doesn't get that, doesn't get as much airtime as it should. And I always think that if we're going to talk about anything, why not talk about the real issue rather than a non-issue? And that's where, where kind of my frustration around the overpopulation argument comes from as well, is that I'm like, it, First of all, it doesn't it doesn't even hold up, and second of all, there are like there are just so many more important things you could talk about. Like we could, why can't we just rather than talking about overpopulation? I just wonder, like why can't we talk about the fact that capitalism is so responsible for a lot of these issues? Why can't we talk about overconsumption? I just think that the kind of obsession of a lot of um, often white male scholars with overpopulation as an argument. Is just this kind of idea of, they, of wanting to point the finger outwards. And it is, I think, I honestly think that it is inherently racist. And there's some really great papers out there that people can read that talks about this and like the specter of ecofascism and how overpopulation as an argument has been used to subjugate people. So, like, and the reason I think that I'm so fervently like as a family talk about all this stuff is because i've read a lot of papers around how this argument has also been used to abuse women in the global south so like there's a case study around Bangladesh where um they basically people went and said we are gonna decrease population here because it's overpopulation is the cause of climate crisis and therefore we need to decrease population and control the and give women contraceptive uh, contraceptives to use and i think Often in like Western feminist movements, like contraceptives have been seen as something that's liberating and they can be if they're used in the right way, obviously. Um, But in this situation, um, contraceptives were given to these women forcibly and they had no choice over the matter. And it ended up like in itself, it was abuse to these women. And so I think having read all these stories and knowing how the overpopulation argument can be used to harm people, it just makes me very wary of it and also just i just think there are so many other things we could talk about and so that's why i'd say to people is just like think about why people have an obsession with this argument and maybe we should talk about other things instead if there's not like we have we all have a limited amount of energy we have a limited amount of time um on this earth and think about like how we're using that and what sort of things we're giving breath to and giving air to
0: absolutely The other thing is two of Project Drawdown's top 10 most impactful solutions to climate change, number six and seven, are girls' education and family Mm. planning, both of which center on empowering women, their health, quality of life, and their autonomies, but that also have a decreased childbirth rate as a byproduct mm. of that. So I'm wondering if you think that kind of plays into eco-fascism or how we can approach these conversations of empowering women in countries where they were traditionally denied proper education or reproductive mm. health services or their human rights and equality with a clear anti-racist approach and condemnation of white supremacy.
1: Mm. That's really, really interesting because that's something that I have been thinking about a lot recently just because I find it difficult that a lot of these, um, organizations, which I would like a lot of the organizations that do a lot of these projects. I find it quite almost, almost sad that they have to do it from an angle of population because empowering women and giving women reproductive autonomy and educating women, um, is a huge factor that can help the climate crisis and um, but that's for so many different ways and that's not just because of population um in a lot of ways it's because women are like when women are empowered to um be able to look after their own land then they are seen to be more productive with that land and they can use it in a way that reduces the environmental impact as well also when women are empowered like that are the other most marginalized in society are usually empowered as well. And there are so many ways in which women's empowerment is so important to the climate crisis. And also like women are such a huge part of the solution and women activists have been the ones to pretty much lead the entire struggle. So I do find yeah it is, it's tricky. It's like, how do we, um, I think, I think if you talk about it in that way, I think if you just, if you show the other issues, I think that we, what I'd love is if people just stopped even talking about overpopulation as a thing, because giving women the control of their reproductive, reproductive autonomy That helps, that helps the climate crisis not, not so much in them not having a child, but more in them being empowered to do other things. And I think if we could just kind of remove this idea that population is, is an issue and if instead we could say that women's like women being subjugated and women not having reproductive autonomy and women not having um, and not being able to finish education because they they get pregnant in areas where they don't have access to contraception if we just viewed it from a different lens of like the women women's empowerment helps helps the climate crisis but it's not because they're not having it's like them not having babies it's not because the babies themselves don't exist it's more because that's empowered them to to have better education and to have a job or lose different things.
0: Right. So basically talk about women empowerment, but there's really no need to bring in their birth rates or what they choose to do with their bodies and how many children Mm. they choose to have. Because again, given that most people in these so-called developing countries have way lower impact than people in developed countries, that really should not be a factor. And I think it's important to understand how dangerous eco-fascist ideologies can be and therefore why it's important for us within this environmental movement to know what it is, be able to distinguish these narratives and call them out as part of our anti-racism work in this movement. So just to illustrate the extreme of eco-fascism, there was a mass shooting by an eco-fascist fascist in 2016 in El Paso, Texas, whose manifesto read the decimation of the environment is creating a massive burden for future generations. Corporations are heading the destruction of our environment by shamelessly overharvesting resources. So that sounds fine. And we agree there, right? But this is kind of where it takes not a dark turn. So he <laughs> continues, everything I have seen and heard in my short life has led me to believe that the average American isn't willing to change their lifestyle, even if the changes only cause a slight inconvenience. If we can get rid of people, then our way of life can be more sustainable, end quote. I actually wasn't aware at the time that this mass shooter, as well as the one in Christchurch, New Zealand, had eco-fascism, as the impetus of their terrorism, but it's just like really chilling to think about.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's when when we when we make out that people are the problem, this is like an extreme example, but this isn't the kind of thing that we open the world up to. It's so like for, even with the the example that I mentioned before about um family planning initiatives. I think people don't realise how much when we say that people are the problem that opens up a space for violence against people because I don't think people are the problem. Like people aren't the problem, systems are the problem and we can change systems and we can, like these systems aren't, they're not immutable. We can cause change and we have a lot of power to cause change to these systems but we need to make sure that when we are talking about the climate crisis, we know who to direct the kind of responsibility to because if we direct it to marginalised individuals, all we're doing is like kind of letting the oppressor off the hook. <laughs> like mm. this isn't about individuals. I don't. I don't think it's about individuals. I think it's about like systems, and I think it's about corporations and those with a, with with a lot of a lot of power. And what we shouldn't be doing is is blaming the average person because yeah, that opens up the world to so much violence against people who actually don't really have the culpability for it.
0: And also people in power would rather us feel like these are individual issues and for us to really point the finger at one another rather than all coming together in the numbers that we have and all point upwards at the system itself, which Mm. is what really needs to be dismantled to address so many of our institutionalized and systemic issues.
1: Mm, No, definitely. I definitely think this, especially within the environmental movement and sustainability movement, I see so often where I feel like The big polluters are winning because we're all arguing in between ourselves about so many small issues about and we're all beating each other up and we're using sustainability as a stick to which to beat each other up with rather than coming together to be like, how can we collectively form solutions and how can we collectively like direct our energy at the right place rather than at each other?
0: So to sum up this eco-fascism discussion, I remember this quote from Naomi Klein that really stuck with me when she spoke about this topic. Um, And I think this is a good takeaway from this discussion. She said something along the lines of the only thing more dangerous than right wing extreme white nationalists denying climate change is right wing white nationalists that believe in the climate crisis. So that was just mm-hmm. super powerful, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah, I haven't had <laughs> right? that before.
1: That, that is really powerful. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um. So definitely something to keep in mind that we can't allow white supremacy to seep into the environmental movement because we are really mm. working towards social justice and environmental justice okay. and ensuring that everybody has a- equitable access to safety clean water clean air and the ability to live healthy and vibrant lifestyles and of course Mm. the less extreme forms of racism are dangerous as well so i'm wondering what you think needs to be done so we can carry this current momentum into cultural Mm. and systemic change and then also what do you dream our future of social and environmental justice might look like
1: so um, kind of kind of mixes both those together in some way, but I, what I'm hoping that will come out of this is that people will have as much distaste for the most subtle, the most everyday, the most mundane forms of racism as they do for the most overt. So one thing that I have seen come out of this movement and come out of everything that's going on at the moment is people seem to have not only focused on like the most violent, so like not only focused on um, when black folks are like killed by police or by individuals in one, in in like a a shorter term thing. People are starting to focus on how black people are being killed every day by the way in which stress affects us through having to experience racism, the way in which microaggressions affect us. And one thing I'd really hope is that as people generally, like we will start having as much intolerance for the, like the most the smallest things for the co- the comments for the the kind of different treatment for all the things that affect black folks as like the same intolerance as we would for the most overt and the most violent forms and my biggest dream I guess is for a world in which I don't have to fight this stuff or talk about this stuff I think people think I enjoy it I think people mm-hmm. think like I really enjoy calling people out on their racism and I'm like I actually find it really uncomfortable <laughs> and it's not this isn't really how I'd ideally like to spend my time. I think, I think one thing I've been thinking about recently is like, if I didn't have to combat racism, like what would I do with my time? Mm. (laughs) What would I, what would I be able to achieve in different ways? Like what would I be able to, um, I don't know how many different ways would I be able to use my mind? And so, yeah, one thing that I'd really hope for and I really dream for is just a world in which I don't feel like I have to, that every day is resistance in some way. Like I'd like to have a time where I don't feel like I have to resist all the time.
0: Mm. Well, we stand with you. And we will, of course, be continuing the anti-racism work ourselves. And we always end up with some actionable tips for our listeners. So what are some suggestions you have for our listener in terms of how they can best support racial justice in their environmental work? Or what are some of some of your favorite resources that you'd like to direct people towards? I would
1: say that um, the best thing to do is when so when you see that someone's perpetuating problematic behaviour or white supremacy or something, rather than just pointing the finger out and being like they they're doing this wrong, they're racist or whatever, point the finger back at yourself and being like, how do I also exhibit this behaviour? I think the best thing that we can do as individuals is work out how we are complicit within the system. So I would say to people like the best kind of anti-racism activism you can do is is work on it with yourself so like put yourself in in situations where you feel uncomfortable and by that i mean read books that challenge your your worldview so like um, leila Sard has an amazing book which is a workbook called me and white supremacy and it's a 28 day course and that's a great thing that you can work through um so it's 28 days of actionable prompts and journaling advice and things like that for how you can really kind of decolonize your mind because i think that if we start with ourselves that's the best place to start and then another book that I'd recommend, which is actually fiction, is Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. Um, it won the Booker Prize this year. Um, it's fiction. It just ta- tells the stories of 12 different um, black women, non-binary people. And for me, it really just changed my worldview and reminded me of how often we'll get stuck within our own stories. Um, and we won't remember that everyone has their own story going on and kind of the value in appreciating other people's perspectives and listening really well.
0: So, Michaela is on Instagram and Twitter. That's where you can find her at Michaela Loach, M I K A E L A L O A C H. Be sure to also check out her podcast called The Yikes Podcast, which you can also find on Instagram. I personally really appreciated their latest episode seven Black Lives Matter is More Than a Trend. And you can also financially support her work through her Patreon at patreon.com slash The Yikes Podcast. Michaela, we appreciate you so much for being here. Thank you so much for sharing your story, your inspirations and learning lessons with us. And please take us home. So what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Oh gosh, pressure. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, I just personally want to say that thank you so much for having me and I've loved being here. Um, I think that the biggest kind of words of inspiration, I guess, that I would say is that we don't all have to be these big, exceptional individuals and do all these huge things in order to be Um, to have a meaningful impact in these movements and we just need to be part of the movement and being part of the movement will look different for all of us but we don't all have to be a Dr King or an Angela Davis Um, we can just be an individual there are so many different individuals in all of these struggles that you'll never know their names and they were equally as important as the ones you do know their names of so just be involved and know that your involvement matters.
0: This is Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. If you've learned from or have been inspired by this episode, we would love to have your direct support starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support so we can keep this show going and accessible to the public. Today's song feature is American Dream by Ray Zaragoza, whose work you can find at rayzaragoza.com. And I also want to thank our audio engineer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate your support so much. Thank you for taking time to tune in and learn with us. And I will catch you soon in the next episode.
2: And I've been thinking about our mother How they took her away from her people Put her in a boarding school away from a brother, sister, and culture. I can hear her every night saying we've got to make this right. Cause hate can't be the face of the American. with mm-hmm.